For me, the memories of what seemed like that ordinary Tuesday 20 years ago are memories of my roommate telling me about a strange accident that seemed to have happened at the World Trade Center, going to a college class only to find the class canceled and the news of the second airplane hitting the second tower. A group from that canceled class huddled in a TV lounge in a dormitory, watching in horror as the towers fell. Rumors, uncertainty and confusion, shock and grief, phone calls to family, an impromptu candlelight vigil that evening. Those are the memories that flash for me, and maybe you have similar ones. Maybe yours are very different. But if you're 25 or over, I'm sure you have those memories. It was three years later that I found myself living in New York, going to seminary. And I often walked past the World Trade Center site, which at that time was an enormous construction zone. A huge pile of debris had finally been dismantled bit by bit. And what remained was an open pit surrounded by a chain-link fence. The chain-link fence had flowers and messages and tributes woven through it here and there. And on the other side, you could see workers in hard hats and construction equipment moving around the foundations. It would take several more years, of course, before the transit center and office building and museum that are there now were completed. And so it was an open site, ground zero. But you could also see something else. A giant 17-foot cross, or what looked like a cross, and was simply two steel beams that had been left in the rubble. They called it the Ground Zero Cross. And in the days right after September 11th, it became a kind of focus for the grief and sorrow and yearning for God's presence of a city and to some extent a nation and a world. It's part of the September 11th Museum now. But at the time I lived there, it had been placed on a concrete pedestal just at the edge of the site. And that cross, for many people, became a kind of silent symbol of God's presence, even in the midst of horrific tragedy. And became, to some extent, a symbol also of the kind of connectedness that so many people experienced in those days. A kind of solidarity born from grief. Whoever wants to be my follower, Jesus says, must take up their cross and follow me. But what does it mean to take up the cross? Jesus says it means to deny yourself, to be willing to lose your life for the sake of God's good news. He says that whoever tries to protect their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for God's sake will gain it. But sometimes people have taken up the cross in a different spirit. Back in the Middle Ages, the Crusaders painted the cross on their shields as they set out to conquer the Holy Land from Islam. 
They picked up the cross in one hand and the sword in the other. They used the cross as a banner as they set out to do violence in God's name, to try to fight with earthly weapons against other children of God whom they believed were evil. How do we use the cross? What cross is it that we take up? Three days after September 11th, a big national prayer service was held at Washington National Cathedral, which is in fact the Episcopal Cathedral of Washington, D.C., as well as a place for interfaith events. And President George W. Bush spoke, and spoke movingly about those who had died, their families and loved ones. He spoke about the grief of a nation and the compassion and strength of those pitching in to help. The president quoted Paul's words of comfort, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth can separate us from the love of God. But the president spoke also of war. He spoke also of vengeance. And he spoke also in cosmic terms about good and evil, and about a fight against evil, and about America as the nation appointed to take up the fight against evil. Our responsibility to history, he said, is clear, to answer these attacks and rid the world of evil. Answer the attacks, we did. And yet 20 years later, it seems heartbreakingly clear that answering the attacks did not rid the world of evil. In the wake of September 11th, this country launched wars in two countries, as well as innumerable drone attacks, covert actions, and so on in other places around the world. In these wars, hundreds of thousands of people have died, many of them Americans, many more of them Iraqis and Afghans and citizens of other countries. And we have seen our society changed. We've seen the proliferation of metal detectors and bollards in our public life. We've seen domestic surveillance, including profiling, profiling of Muslims and people from the Middle East. We've seen the creation of a prison on foreign soil at Guantanamo, intentionally created to get around the legal protections of the American Constitution. We've seen the humiliation of prisoners at Abu Ghraib and torture used in the name of American freedom. Now, those are not the only things we have seen in the last 20 years. There have been acts of great bravery and self-sacrifice and love among soldiers and civilians, American and Iraqi and Afghan and more. There's been kindness and friendship. There have been, in many cases, genuine efforts and even heroic efforts to promote democracy and freedom and prosperity. 
And I want to say, too, that for us as Christians, in our theological tradition, there is an enormously strong strain of pacifism. There is an enormously strong tradition that says Christians never take up arms. And yet there is also a tradition of the just war. There's a tradition that says that there are times when it's acceptable and even necessary to use limited force for self-defense or for the defense of others. And so this is not a story of unmitigated evil and wrong and disaster, but it is a tragic story. And as we look at events in Kabul, at events of the last many years in Iraq, it is hard not to say that this has been a story in many cases of the failure of a strategy based on violence and retribution to rid the world of evil. We can see how quickly those moments of grief and of solidarity moved into vengeance, into the idea that America was the good guy who could use its military might to rid the world of evil. And we can see how that response has left its corrosive consequences on our society. A society bitterly divided. A society more suspicious than 20 years ago. More anxious. Less able to do big things together. Jesus took his followers to the regions of Caesarea Philippi and asked them who he was. And when Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah, Peter had something very specific in mind. What Peter had in mind was power. What Peter had in mind was force, military power, power to be used for good. The power that would rid Israel of its Roman occupiers. The kind of power that would put a good king on the throne, King Jesus to usher in a golden age, an age of freedom, an age of prosperity, an age of faithfulness to God. That is what Peter expected. That's what he was looking for when he called Jesus the Messiah. And of course, it turned out that Jesus didn't come to rid the world of evil, at least not in that way. He came to win the world to God and his way of opposing evil was to let it kill him with words of forgiveness on his lips. So when Jesus spoke of those things, Peter was stunned. He let Jesus have it. And in return, Jesus let Peter have it. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Which maybe means, in other words, Stop acting the part of Satan. Stop tempting me to act the ways that the world acts. And maybe get behind me also means something like, get out of my way. Stop being an obstacle to the path that God has called me to walk. And maybe also get behind me means something like, follow in my footsteps. Be my disciple. Take your place behind me and walk in the way that I am walking, the way God has given me, which is the way of the cross.
Peter couldn't fathom that way on that day at Caesarea Philippi. Peter wanted to take up arms for the cause of good. He wanted vengeance in God's name. But Peter would learn to walk that way. He would become a true disciple, even to the point of giving up his own life on a Roman cross at the end of his life. Little by little, Peter would learn. And so have many others throughout the ages. Disciples who have learned little by little to put down the banner of vengeance and pick up the cross of life. You and I are being shaped in that way. When we hear these scriptures, when we share this holy meal, Another of those disciples who have learned to walk in the way of Jesus was a person named Father Michael Judge. He was a Franciscan priest and a chaplain with the New York Fire Department. He has gone down in history as the first recorded victim of the 9-11 attacks, the first inscribed in the books of the coroners. He was struck by debris from the collapsing South Tower as he stood in the North Tower, ministering and praying with those who were fleeing, those who were charging in, those who were dying. He and his crew had been among those charging in. Answering the call, they raced into the towers as others were racing out, putting themselves in danger for the sake of others. Michael Judge was a beloved chaplain and more, he had joined the Franciscans as a teenager, captivated by the idea of a vow of poverty and a life of service. During the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, he had been a founder of the St. Francis AIDS Ministry. He was known for sitting with young, dying gay men, anointing them and giving them communion at a time when much of the church would hardly touch them. It wasn't widely known, but he too was a gay man and he advocated widely for gay Catholics, striving to bring together in his own person the church that he knew to be a flawed representative of Jesus and those whom he knew Jesus loved so desperately. He was a good priest and a good chaplain, and in one moment, following his vocation, following the path God had given him to walk, he found himself on the way of the cross. Now, Michael Judge had a particular prayer that he'd written and that he prayed daily and that he had printed up on little cards that he would give out to people he ministered with. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. And to me, that last line reminds me of Jesus telling Peter to get behind him. Keep me out of your way, Lord. Keep me from being an obstacle to what you are doing. Keep me in my path as a disciple, walking in your footsteps. Keep me from seeking the world's kind of power instead of yours. Keep me in the way of the cross. Lord, 
May you take us where you want us to go today. Lord, let us meet who you want us to meet. Tell us what you want us to say. And keep us out of your way. Amen.